you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you're new with us here today, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount and we're coming to a text that um, very practical but very challenging this morning. And I want to begin by reading the text here today. Verse 21 in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let me begin by just putting a little cartoon. And obviously they're in hell. Did you catch that? Harsh words exchanged in hell. But listen to some other words as I speak them here. I hate you. I wish we had never gotten married. I want a divorce. You're so stupid. You're worthless. I wish you were dead. I wish we never had you. I wish you weren't my parents. You ever heard any of those statements or maybe even uttered some? See, if we're completely honest, there have been times where words just flow out of our mouths that we know are hurtful. But even then, at at those moments, the flesh rises up and what springs forth is justification. And what flows actually out of her lips there then is, is, is phrases like this. You're the one that really made me angry. Or I, I just lost my temper. Or maybe this one, I really didn't mean it. Or how about this one, um, maybe this is the most lame one. I was just joking. We've done that. See, those words are attempt an attempt to minimize the insults, and try to avoid some things. This sermon that we've been walking through, he is inviting the people of that day, his disciples, and us here today toward a a type of righteousness that is so different than what the flesh and what the world displays. This text today, he's inviting us and he's desiring to work with us in our motives, in our emotions, and our relationships. The Sermon on the Mount, this is a challenging sermon. And we catch this, that he is trying to define what righteousness is really about. And he begins here, in today's text, he begins with this phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old. What's he saying there? Remember the old ways in which you were taught? 
And then Jesus begins to challenge them and their definition of what righteousness was all about. But he does something here that would have caused them to pause as he was listening to him. In verse 22, he goes like this, But I say to you, but I say to you, see, you believe this about the teaching that you heard in the past, but I say to you, do you hear the weight of how he's claiming an authority in actually defining a greater standard of righteousness. Now, let me just give you the first observation and an application, and we'll begin digging here today. Number one, if you're taking notes, we have that bulletin insert there. You can follow along with that. But I said it this way. True righteousness goes far deeper than certain behaviors. See, the people of that day were trapped, and I think we're trapped as well, that righteousness, that word, is about outward behavior. Act right on the outside and one's kind of good to go. See, they believed that righteousness was about following a set of laws, a set of rules. And it's what God expected of them. Now, I do think that there's a bit of a paradigm that they bought into, and I think we buy into at times as well, and it really is this, is that we think of our relationship with God as a type of legal contract. So it kind of goes like this. I do my part. God, you do your part. I obey the rules. God, you bless me. But there's another aspect here, because even as we live within that contract, the flesh begins to creep in, and there's a subtle attitude, and it kind of goes like this. Let me see what I can get away with and still not violate the contract. And then God will still keep his part. And examples even like this. Okay, God, if I go to church twice a month, you're going to bless me, won't you? And if I read my Bible a couple times a week, you're supposed to change me, aren't you? You're going to be there for me, aren't you? That's a contractual type of living. But this text really wipes away any kind of a performance contract. And let me give you another application then how it fits here. Number two, our motives truly define the level of righteousness within our hearts. Righteousness is deeply connected to the motives. But I know one thing for myself, and I think I've seen this in lots of other people, it's when the flesh begins to work there. And you know what? We work really hard at looking at our motives. We really don't like it. Let's just avoid that. And when somebody challenges our motive, we usually become defensive. But but catch this. In this passage today, he uses one of the Ten Commandments, and he's pushing them in their understanding about their motives, about their righteousness, and what it means to live within the kingdom of heaven. So he brings this illustration that when one kills another person, thou shalt not kill. He goes, there has to be a liability. There's a judgment to it. And guess what? The crowd knew that. But here's where he goes below the surface. 
And he begins to dig and, and he goes after the motives of the heart. And, and we got to just realize this. The heart is where righteousness exists or where it doesn't exist. Now, I said a few moments ago, the flesh pulls us to try to find out how little we can do to convince ourselves that we're doing okay spiritually. So we feel good about ourselves. But this commandment, thou shalt not kill. We even read that on the internet. And Jesus is pushing us here, but we read about it. We see somebody killing somebody else, and we look and go, oh, that is so terrible. Look how evil they are. Oh, it's so sad. Matter of fact, I think we can look at people when they murder somebody and kind of feel sorry and go, boy, Satan really got a hold of their hearts. Look at the depravity within their souls. But when we do that, deep down, isn't there just a little bit of us going, I'm sure glad I'm more righteous than they are. They've killed somebody. They deserve judgment. See, see this text... Jesus is challenging them. It goes deeper. The intention of the commandment, there's more to it than than just thou shalt not kill. He's redefining what righteousness really is about. He goes past the act, and he's going to the motives. And he begins to connect here, killing, thou shalt not kill, with anger, insults, and even failed relationships. And he basically is saying there really isn't much difference between those things. Now here's where i got to go down an alley a little bit just to point something out. In, in their day, they were so much more... They're not, they weren't visual people. They were auditory people. They listened with the ears. And in doing so, their communication style was actually far more in-depth than ours. And then there's actually a literary thing here, even in this passage, that, that Jesus really, to drive home a point, he actually gives three statements that are roughly parallel to each other. But the device that he used is that each one builds to another level. Let me put it on the screen, those three statements. The first, the bottom level, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Then he elevates a little bit. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then he says this, whoever says to you, you fool. Now, in your version, you might, if you have a little, old raka, does anybody have that in their translation? It literally means you infidel, you fool, you, you worthless person. You will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see how the weight builds in every one? What is he doing? To be angry with another person, to demean them by insults, to belittle others. He's saying that you are also liable to judgment just like the one who kills someone. Anger, insults are on the same plane as killing someone. Now, I learned something this week. And digging in that the word judgment, many scholars believe that it's actually referring to an eternal judgment. There's a day, there's a council coming when all our deeds, all of the things, our motives are going to be laid bare. 
in front of God. But here's the, the dilemma. We've learned to rate hurtful actions and words. So anger erupts at someone, and it leads to hurting someone with words. And we kind of go, you know, murder's really terrible. But anger and hurtful words toward others, it really isn't that bad. Now, why do we believe that? In the context of this passage, I think we would say this. You know what? Murder, they're going to be taken to court. They're going to be arrested. Insults? There really isn't any laws against it. I'm not going to get arrested if I insult my wife or insult somebody else. I'm not going to be taken to jail. Therefore, it's not as bad. See, see, we think just because we don't have judgment here, we go, there's really not an issue. Matter of fact, we have freedom of speech. Don't we? We can insult anybody that we want. But Jesus says, we are liable to judgment. Almost a type of heavenly supreme court that looks at our hearts and our motives. So he's saying that unrighteous anger and insults and words that trash someone is no different than murder. And again, we default and we rate the sins, and murder's not that bad. Insults are a little bit, they're way, that's way different. Bad-mouthing people to put people down, you know what, really not a problem. We didn't shoot anybody, did we? Listen to Proverbs, verse 6.16. Let me put that on the screen for you. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. And verse 19, a false witness who utters lies. That's talking about a relationship there. And one who spreads strife among brothers. Folks, that's going to include insults, looking to turn others away from someone else relationally. God despises that behavior. See, Jesus here, he is pushing these people and and his disciples to consider the truth that even the seeds of killing, there's more to it than that. You know, even in murder, it starts way before that. It, it, It starts with claiming the right to hate someone, to show anger at someone, to view that other person as worthless and not deserving of life. But but see, even anger, where he addresses here, the anger of emotion that he speaks toward, you realize it can reside in the heart for years. And it can be buried deeply. And then it can, it doesn't always just explode out. It can just, like some little steam, just I was cooking some corn yesterday, and the top had a little hole, and the steam just comes out a little bit at a time. There's pressure there, and the anger is within. Counselors working with people all the time, they pick up the clues, and they're, they're thinking in their minds right away, where did the anger come from? I had a guy came into the office years ago, 
And the pastor that was meeting with him was right across the way, and the door was open, and um, he began to describe he was really concerned about his son, who was exhibiting signs of anger. And this dad started going, and, and, and he, you know, I just don't know what's happening to my son, and he's always so angry. He was just elevating, and I was just sitting there kind of chuckling. He was like, boy, this guy does not know how angry he is. But, but you catch this. See, anger resides in people for a long time. And, and I would say this. If you know deep within you that there's anger issues there, it, it, it starts by owning it and, and stop blaming others for it. It's your heart. That's where it starts. But there's a nuance to this text i got to point out because the phrase, everyone who is angry with his brother. Now that word brother is not biological brother. It's a wide meaning. So it would include anybody that we associate and know. And in that day, any Israelite would have been their brother. So it's not that, it's a, so you recognize it's a, it's a wide understanding of who we have to deal with this stuff with. But there's a, some point I want to point out to you on your notes, I said it this way. The sins within our hearts are most often directed at people we know. See, that's where words and those anger and insults, most of the time, yeah, there's road rage where you look at the driver next, you know, and just go, you, you blast them, people blast them. But I'm convinced it has more to do with the relationships of people that we know. This text is profoundly about relationships. You know, even with killing, uh, I, I looked up to go, how many people know each other that they kill? And the vast majority, they know them. They're in relationship with them. Some kind of a relationship. But folks, this text today, really at the heart, is about relationships. And oftentimes ugliness starts when one is offended, when angry words are spoken, insults are given, and then offense is taken, and then retaliation and getting justice and getting even, and it becomes that becomes the name of the game. I remember a, a marriage years ago, I don't remember, a long time ago. A couple came in, and they had been married for about eight years or so. And the, the kind of the, the, in a good way, the kind of the dam broke. She was really seething. There, you could just sense it. And in her anger, she finally admitted to me trying to probe of where did the anger come from. And there was an incident on a boat, and they were fishing, okay? And it took place, and she had held on to it all this time. And the incident took place on the honeymoon. For eight years, she held on to it. See, the resentment toward another takes hold. But it starts, it's within the heart. And why does it stay there? It, it says, it really goes back again to Genesis 3, where you claim the right to play God, claiming that it's okay. I'm not murdering them, but it's okay that I can be bitter or I can direct insults at another. 
And then the justification kicks in. At least it's not murder. It's not physical harm. And so therefore, we end up, we say character assassination. It's okay. It's not like murder. It's okay to call somebody a fool as long as we don't cross the line of violence and murder. You see the tension in this text, what he's doing to us. But there's another aspect of righteousness that he's challenging his audience with. Number three for your notes. Righteousness within the kingdom works toward reconciled relationships. And Jesus goes on to make three statements, and it's followed up by these two exhortations to repair the relational world. And he gives two illustrations into what righteousness, or how he's inviting people toward a righteousness that is so different. Look at the first one in verse 23. It says this, If you sow, connecting back to the previous, if you are offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now let me give you the application, or maybe the implication is a better word. Number four there for your notes, our ability to worship is impacted by broken relationships. Folks, this is a hard one for us to swallow. It connects worshiping with God and our horizontal relationships. Now here's where i got to point out. Notice the direction of the offense here. If somebody has something against you, it doesn't say if you have a problem with somebody else and, and you come to given a gift for worship, see, that's not what it's saying. And I think deep down when, when we do that, if we're bitter towards somebody else and we're holding a grudge, I think the Holy Spirit just kind of says, Ken, you know you need to repair that. But this one is different. If somebody has something against you, And here's the challenge. I suspect, I had having a conversation about this with somebody yesterday. I suspect that we know of people that have something against us. And sometimes we don't even know who they are. Somebody one time came and said, Ken, this person's upset with you. And they go, well, I said, what for? I don't know. So I went and talked to them. And it was really weird. It was, I was walking down a hall and didn't say hi. I was help absorbed and... She was angry with me. So we met and talked about it, got it figured out. But you catch this. If you sense somebody is angry at you, you're not bitter at them. See, we tend to go, it's their problem. They're upset with me. I I don't know what's going on. I don't have a problem with them. Do you see how hard this one is for us? I can't help but wonder if Jesus chooses this illustration because it actually is more difficult for us to seek reconciliation and healing. Again, if we hold a grudge towards someone else, I think it's obvious. See, but here's what I think he's doing. To reconcile to someone who 
who, who you don't even know or you know have an offense against, but you don't have an issue, it is really hard because at times then we have to search our own souls. And there's a place where I think we're uncomfortable admitting that there might be something within our heart that's still there. And God still wants to bring it to light. See, I really think it ties back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, I think at the core what he's doing, he's inviting us to humble ourselves, knowing that pride keeps us from reconciling with others, even if we don't have bitterness, even if we've let something go. And maybe more important here, maybe it's pride and self-love that keeps us really from worshiping the king, the son, the father. See, our worship is stunted when we do not humble ourselves and long for and work to fix broken relationships. But there's another illustration here. Look at verse 25. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See, this time Jesus has us compare ourselves of somebody taking us to court. And what's the encouragement there? Make friends quickly before you get to court. What's he saying? Sit down and reconcile before it turns into a contest in a court system. He's saying work to settle this personally before it comes into the legal world. See, Jesus paints this picture of paying a high price for refusing to work towards healing instead of moving it into the courts. That phrase, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penalty. I just can't help but wondering if this is a bit of an irony that he's speaking about here. He's applying the, the war and warning to his disciples of going, guys, it never pays to go down the court system. And maybe he's implying this, if you want to go down the legal direction, Go ahead, but you will pay a price. And when you do, what do you have left after that? A right relationship? No. It's broken. You may have gained justice to equalize pain, but it didn't change anyone, and it left relationships broken and twisted. And over the years, I've watched people take people to court for justice, but the relationship will always be worse, in a worse condition after the legal process is over. See, when we don't pursue reconciliation with the righteousness of Christ, things go from bad to worse, even if justice is sought. But what do we see here? I think it's this. We've got to step back. I should have put this in your notes. But don't we see God's heart of reconciliation here? See, even in the commandment, do not kill, that's about relationship. But he expands it to angry words, thoughtless words, lawsuits, the death of relationships. And those are the opposite of what righteousness is all about. 
So the righteousness of Christ is not about ignoring those things. We are not to be letting relationship go, just push it under the rug. Righteousness is about dealing with hard issues of anger, insults, words that hurt, destroy, all in the context of relationship. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus spoke of hungering and thirst for righteousness, of being poor in spirit, meek. Remember we talked about meekness before where it's the ability to turn the other cheek and not hold on. See, the blessed realize that there's an inability to to do this on our own and that righteousness really starts with this hands-open attitude that says, God, I need you. Would you change me? Give me a new spirit. Put the fruit in my life that yields a new nature. And folks, it can only come from God. And, And then the result is beauty and restoration in relationships. Last week, we kind of ended with Jesus saying, our righteousness has to be beyond what the Pharisees and the scribes had. It goes beyond what's doing right. It, it moves into the heart, and but it also moves into the relating world, just like Christ. See, Jesus is a reconciler. God is one who loves reconciliation. And so Jesus is encouraging his listeners to see what is righteous and to long for that, to fix broken relationships, to stop using words that hurt because it's just like murder. Let me give you a a verse, just some context and other cross-references. Ephesians 4.26, look how this reads. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. What's he saying there? He says, deal with it quickly. Don't let it wait. Don't avoid it. But we do justify it. Let me put a little cartoon up here. It kind of shows this. Don't tell me to calm down. I've got another good six minutes before sundown before I have to reconcile. You see the justification there. I'm going to let them have it, and then i got to obey. But let me show you a couple of verses later, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, Rage, anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Do you realize as you look at that, the context of that is relationships. Are we giving words that lead to life or are we giving words that lead to death? Are we reconciling when we give those death words? Are we willing to pursue and ask for forgiveness and to forgive? See, God's heart is that we would reconcile. That's living within the kingdom of heaven. But let me end with one more verse, James 1, 19 and 20, very pointed. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, 
I think that's the pause and ponder what part we have to play. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. See, this is about a relationship here again. But look at this last trade. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It's pretty pointed. See, he wants reconciliation, words of life. Why? Because that's the righteousness that God wants for our lives. What needs to happen? Because I don't think we have power to do it on our own at times. It's this place where you've got to go, okay, God, you've got to work in me. Lord, would you give me the ability to give words of life rather than death? Would you give me the ability to sense when somebody's angry at me and I, I will begin a conversation with them that can lead to potential reconciliation? We at least do our part. Lord, when we sin against somebody else, are we willing to humble ourselves and go, would you forgive me for those words, for those insults, for demolishing your character in some sense? Do you see how this is, though, impossible without the Holy Spirit working in us? We can't do this on our own. The flesh just goes, that's not that bad. And the Spirit is going, no, go to a place that you can't go on your own. And it starts with God working me. Let's stand and pray.